If you're looking to buy or sell pre-IPO stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. Since 2009, SharesPost has transacted more than $4 billion in the top private tech companies. Proven, trustworthy, secure. Visit us at SharesPost.com. Hello, it's uh, me again, and this week we are talking about what's going on with Elon Musk and taking Tesla private, Q2 numbers from WeWork and Uber, and their losses, Neo, a car company, is going public on the New York Stock Exchange, and also what the heck happened to crypto. Disrupt SF is around the corner, everybody, and you know what that means. Panels with all-star investors such as Roloff Botha, Reed Hoffman, and Aileen Lee, celebrities Ashton Kutcher and Mike Judge, and hot topics like space, the blockchain, fitness, drones, and health. And guess what else? We're going to record Equity Live yet again. Come watch myself, Connie Loizos, and our guest Gary Tan of Initialized Capital Live on stage Thursday, September 6th on the Showcase stage at 3 p.m. You know you want to come, head on over to techwrench.com slash events slash disrupt dash SF dash 2018 and enter code equity for 15% off the main ticket price. Oh, the savings. Hello and welcome to Equity. I'm Crunchbase News Editor-in-Chief Alex Wilhelm. And this week we have TechCrunch Editorial Manager Danny Crichton on the line. Danny, how are you? Uh, things are great. Good, good, good. And uh, our guest this week is K2 Global founder Manal Hassan. Manal, thank you for coming in. Hello, hello. Thank you this, for having me. This is the first time we've had a VC who was a former journalist on the show. So I'm expecting this to be obviously our best episode uh, to date. And that's also undergirded by the fact that Everyone's favorite Silicon Valley, um, I don't know, humorous jester. Elon Musk is back in the news for, oddly enough, non-Model 3-ish news. Um, after a relatively good earnings report, Tesla's drama engine cranked back to life. And something happened involving musicians, allegations of acid and other other things. So I don't know. When, all, when you heard about the stuff that was going on with Elon and all of this drama from the last weekend, were you surprised it was kind of spilling out into the open? Because I was shocked. Uh, no, I mean, he's had his Donald Trump-esque moments many times in the past, uh, many confrontations with media. Um, I, it's, I, don't, I don't think it's anything new for him. Hmm. So, Danny, what happened with the, the whole Tesla going private thing and Elon's tweet? Look, it's, it looks like the SEC is now investigating it. It sent a subpoena yesterday um, to the company asking for documentation of exactly what was going on. It appears that um, Musk was actually talking to the Saudi Arabian Sovereign Wealth Fund um, to do an investment. It looks like they had a verbal agreement, uh, which apparently in Musk's world means funding secured. Um, so more to come, I think, in the next two or three weeks. So essentially, if you didn't catch the news cycle, uh, Elon tweeted out that he's considering taking Tesla private at $420 a share and said, quote, funding secured. Uh, there's two things to know there. One, 420 is a marijuana joke. And if you don't get that, ask your kid. And uh, two, the funding wasn't secure. So essentially, people are concerned that this could have been securities fraud. I thought he was going to get in trouble, but apparently that might not be the case. Yeah. I mean, speaking as a former securities lawyer, uh, I think he will probably get a minor slap on the wrist from the SEC, maybe a fine of 50K or less. Uh, I don't think it's going to be a big deal. That's shocking to me. I, I just it feels like a much bigger see, the stock price moved by like several billion dollars in value. Right? I mean, this was a big, big moment. Yeah. I mean, I think it would have only been a major problem if he had bought or sold Tesla shares prior to tweeting in the hopes that if if the price went up, he made a profit 
or what have you. But in the absence of any kind of clear intent to commit securities fraud, uh, I don't <laughs> think it's going to be con- considered securities fraud. All right. All right. Well, I mean, that's all fine. But the question now is, can Elon take Tesla private at all? I mean, if you can get the funding, can you pull it off at 420 a share? I don't even know if that's enough of a premium to get everyone to vote in favor of it. A lot of the Tesla kids have been very bullish on the company's prospects, especially now with Promised, um, I think it was positive cash flow in the second half of the year. So. Yeah, I mean, my concern is if Saudi helps take it private, they're going to have to believe that there's a portion of illiquidity. And for Tesla to eventually go public again a few years down the road, which I think they'll have to, um, that would make it the biggest IPO in tech history. I mean, if they go private at $70 billion, that means that they're going to have to go republic at what? Well, at least $100 billion, if not $150, right? Because you're going to assume there's some appreciation in the value of Tesla shares over the next few years as well. This is actually what happened. Uh, Danny, have you been watching what's going on with Dell recently and how Dell may go public again after going private a couple of years ago? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I just I, I got kind of annoyed about that. I think actually on this show because I didn't want to have to go through another Dell transaction because they're always a huge pile of mess. But uh, I guess here we here we go again. Now there's well, and Alex, uh, let me tell you. I mean, one one similarity between Tesla and Dell is they both have um, significant insider shares. So, for instance, with uh, Tesla, um, insiders, including Elon Musk, own twenty five percent of the company, right? So, a uh, take private only has to account for the fifty eight percent of sort of big institutional investors and and seventeen percent of the individual investors. So, it, it's it's not as heavy of a lift as it might appear uh, at first glance. However, uh, T. Rowe Price and Fidelity, I think they own about 62% of the company. And I think what people don't realize is that they may need special permissions from their shareholders to invest in a private company. There are a lot of legal nuances here that oh, I don't even know that if they're thinking through. There are also SEC rules around how many shareholders a public company can have that's going private. Uh, they might need CFIUS approval if Saudi Arabia is involved, uh, approval from the Treasury Department. It's a little bit more complicated than that, even though they have very few shareholders. Okay, so to be clear, though, Elon said funding secured. So that means all of your points are moot. We don't have to worry about them. Elon will dig a tunnel under LA and they'll all just go away. I guess that's what it feels like when I read Twitter analysis of of Tesla. Um, Just to kind of hit the nail on this, I mean, they had a pretty good quarter. If you go back to uh, August 1st when their earnings came out. Um, So maybe he has the credibility to to pull this off. I mean, I guess Saudi Arabia putting money into an electric car company is forward-looking, um, but I don't know if they have the the capital to uh, take the whole thing. Anyways, we should move on. Um, this was a big week for uh, for unicorns, actually. Big couple of weeks. So over the last little bit, we've had two of the most valuable private corporations in the world, WeWork, which does co-working, and uh, Uber, which does uh, ride-hailing and bringing burritos to your house via Uber Eats, both disclosed um, their numbers, and they're both growing quickly and uh, losing money as you kind of expected. So I'm going to run through some really high level numbers quickly. And then I want to kind of dig through uh, what we think. So um, we work, which, you know, leases office buildings and then fixes them up and then rents them out to small businesses and large companies and startups. And it's kind of synonymous with the uh, future of work side of thing. I'm going to go through a couple of the numbers from a relatively high level. And then we can talk about what we think. So in the second quarter of this year, we work had revenue of 421.6 uh, million dollars. Now that was up about 113% from the year ago result of 198 million. So kind of off the top, pretty impressive top line growth. And WeWork is now 
pretty large. I mean, that's a large revenue. So that's bigger than Box's earnings per year. And uh, in the first half of this year, they had a net loss of $723 million, which was up almost 400% from a $154 million loss in the year ago, half year period. And they're now on a $1.8 billion run rate, um, which I ran back through the numbers. They had a $1.5 billion run rate in June of this year and about a $1 billion run rate back in June of 2017. So in 14 months, about 80% growth on a run rate basis, staggering losses and uh, lots of money. So Manal, when you see this, what do you think about uh, how the company's performing? I mean, I, it, they're performing very well. However, I don't see how it justifies a $20 billion valuation and soon to be a potentially $35 billion valuation. I mean, if I compare them to IWG, formerly Regis, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they're about 10 times the size of WeWork currently. And they're valued at, what, $4 billion? Sure, so somewhere in there, yeah. That should really mean that WeWork should be ra- valued at about $2.7 billion. Now, okay, let's say that, you know, Regis is not sexy. WeWork has a sexy brand. Okay, let's give them an extra couple of billion dollars to add to that valuation, right? How does their brand translate to $20 billion? I mean, this is essentially a race to the bottom. Anybody can come in here because, I mean, they don't really have any kind of proprietary technology, right? So if somebody else comes in here and says, hey, we're going to lower the rates, uh, the rental rates below what WeWork has. And guess what, you guys? Everyone gets a free happy hour every week. I mean, <laughs> WeWork's going to be in trouble. And if there's a downturn in the economy, I mean, I think that'll be the other issue. Suddenly there'll be the occupancy rates will change dramatically. Yeah. Danny, what do you think? You know, I, there's almost a, a relationship with uh, MoviePass here. I mean, if you actually think about what the real estate market is like in a place like New York, where I'm based here uh, now, you know, CEOs of companies actually have to sign personal guarantees on rent in order to get a space in Manhattan. That's sort of the classic model. And we were came in and you know spent an enormous amount of money uh, and sort of said, no, there's a new model. You can do subscription. You can you can do it month to month. It's going to be okay. Um, Ironically, just this week in the Wall Street Journal, uh, a, a ton of um, major real estate um, owners here in the city and, and across the United States um, were interviewed. And, and basically, they're all moving to these flex- flexible models. So the incumbents are now copying WeWork to provide that level of flexibility. So uh, in much the same way that MoviePass sort of recreated the way we do movies um, and forced AMC to give a subscription, I think in many ways, WeWork is doing the same for landlords. Yeah, but the the costs are kind of nuts to do this. So I think those old guarantees had some kind of basis in reality. So if you think about WeWork's 2017, their full year loss was 105% of revenue. So for every dollar they run in, they spent $2 roughly. Now, in the first half of this year, revenue was 105% of its loss. So finally, revenue is now above its pace of net losses, giving them a less than negative 100% uh, net margin. Now, that's not good, but it's still a good thing to cross over. It's better to have less than 100 negative percent than, than more. Um, but I'm just kind of shocked at how far the company is from profitability and its losses are getting larger. So as it grows, it's it kind of burning, consuming more money. Um, I, I, to me, this is just terrifying to look at. You would think that a company that would be theoretically this hot would have a much cleaner uh, cost structure and a faster ability to, to reduce loss as opposed to actually expanding it on a year-over-year basis. The other thing that concerns me is they've taken out these multi-decade leases. And... Uh, the folks who are renting are renting on a monthly basis. So there's a mismatch in their model, right? So, I mean, if you look at how much their lease commitments are, I believe it's about $18 billion. Granted, they only have guarantees up to $1.9 billion, but that's still quite a lot. And so, um, I mean, it, it just concerns me 
You know, I don't know what they're going to do about that. Because your point here is that if they have these long-term leases and high fixed costs, if a downturn comes and a bunch of their months and months people take off, all of a sudden they're left holding the bag. Exactly. Large payments over, like I guess, you know, five, 10 years, which is a huge potential liability if the market turns. Um, the problem there is I've been saying the market's going to turn since like 2015 and a half. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've just been wrong. Uh, for so long. Maybe this will keep going long enough to make it work out. But it seems like WeWork would need a lot of time to get this ship righted. So they're not they're not close to, uh, you know, I would presume that I didn't, you know, just operating cash flow break even. So everything's kind of negative uh, for them. Anyways, uh, let's talk about Uber, um, which came out with its Q2 numbers. I think it was yesterday. So this is kind of uh, hot off the presses for us. And the, the top level look at this is that Uber essentially is still growing and is still um, losing quite a lot of money. Happily, though, uh, the Journal, everyone's uh, favorite uh, conservative-leaning newspaper, has a great infographic going through all of Uber's results going back to Q1 of 17. So we can actually kind of read these like they're a public company's results. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though they're unaudited and a lot of the numbers are non-GAAP, it's still a shocking level of disclosure um, for the company. So anyways, uh, super high-level numbers and then kind of same thing I want to get how we feel about it. But the gross bookings, which is the aggregate value of all transactions on the Uber platform, Rose from about uh, 11.3 billion in Q1 to just over 12 billion in Q2. Um, net revenue grew from 2.59 billion to 2.80 billion, so reasonable growth there. And uh, adjusted EBITDA was negative 614 million in the period, and their net loss was negative 891 million. So, kind of the same story: a lot of growth, a lot of losses. Um, the only real positive point that I can bring up is that their operating cash flow. Uh, burn is only like negative 170 million in the last quarter. So not that bad compared to, to net revenue. But I mean, same idea. Yeah, except, you know, their business model is very different. Now, if I'm an Uber investor, I would be disappointed if Uber were trying to turn a profit right now. Uh, so long as all of their metrics keep going up significantly, which they are, uh, the goal for them is growth, right? Their goal is to own transportation. Um, and you know, they have three assets, right? They have number of users, number of drivers, and number of places that folks are getting to. And uh, basically, that's their competitive edge. So it's a land grab for these three things. And uh, that's really the name of the game. So I think growth has to be uh, at the forefront of their minds. Well, it seems to be given just the cost. But Danny, when you took a look at these numbers, did anything kind of pop out at you? I mean, it all pops, right? I mean, I, I think what's interesting is they are taking a greater take rate um, on the transactions. So they're up to 23% now. Um, the drivers are also taking a, a higher take rate because they're actually lowering the amount of advertising and marketing spend that they're doing in a lot of these cities. And so, um, you know, if you actually compare these numbers to some of the other data at the city level that's been published, um, I think what you're seeing is that Uber is starting to own certain urban areas where they are 70, 80, 90% of the market. And they're still duking it out in places like New York, like San Francisco. Uh, but if they can start to lock in more of those sort of um, um, say second tier urban markets that that becomes sort of the basis by which they can continue to grow at a sustainable rate. So just to back you up there, they collected a little bit under twenty three percent of gross bookings as uh, sorry a little over twenty three percent of gross bookings as net rev in Q two of this year, up from a little bit under twenty three percent in the first quarter of this year, and in Q one seventeen it was just over twenty percent. So they have been slowly scooting that number up. I think the tension there is they can't cut driver payments. 
uh, quickly. But as that number itself grows in the billions, they can take a slightly higher percentage over time, even though their um, their margins on an operating basis are pretty weak given their cost structure. But if that's not an issue in the short term, they certainly have access to tons of cash. You know. Yeah, I mean, it's the Amazon model, right? Focus on growth, not profits. But Amazon, I felt, was closer to the metal. You know, they weren't quite as unprofitable. Like I, I did some addition, um, which I'm now scrolling awkwardly to go find. Yeah. So if you just take their S and M costs and mm-hmm. their GNA in Q2, just that was 1.44 billion, and that was 94 percent of gross profit before like R and D and stock based comps. So, like they're super far from anything approaching profitability. That just doesn't seem to bother you. No, <laughs> not really. No. Danny, you, so you agree? Okay. I'm in the same boat. I mean, look, I think people criticized Amazon for decades for not yeah. turning a profit. It was closer. Um, in the last couple of years, Amazon Web Services has driven a huge amount of um, you know, top-line margin uh, benefit for the company. And um, I think the question is, is you know, is there a set sort of business for Uber? Um, this may be an entree into a bunch of other um, far more lucrative businesses. And you know, maybe they can break even here and, and make the money on you know, destinations or advertising or in, in, in flight or you know, in the car kind of experiences. Um, you know, they're testing those. Um, I'm not sure they found it, uh, but that could be really interesting for the company long term. So this is what's been told to me since you know, back in like 2014. I wrote an article about like, the bear case on Uber back then about its economics. And everyone said, no, no, don't worry. They're going to launch food delivery. They're going to do package delivery. They had this network of drivers. It's going to be incredibly lucrative. They can expand the business. They've launched one thing that has been fantastically high growth for them, which is Uber Eats, which has an enormously bad operating margin based on what we know. So I'm, I'm not convinced that they can find some sort of break-even place on the uh, ride-hailing side because everyone would attack that potential margin. Like Lyft's not going to let them do that. They can't really just break even here and do more stuff. But at the same time, uh, I'm not rich and uh, I'm also not an investor. So I'm probably just wrong on this. But it feels like an insane amount of expense um, this late in the cycle, especially when some of their numbers are going down. Like, you know, some of these numbers are not getting better. Their Q1 adjusted EBITDA was much less negative than their Q2. So that's a, you know, a move away from profitability uh, in the short term, which I guess isn't bad in 2018. It's an odd year. Hey, everyone. Don't forget, this episode is brought to you by Shares Post. Uh, Danny, Neo, speaking about cars, what is a Neo and why is it going public? Yeah, so Neo is a uh, Chinese electric car company, a startup. Um, it's sort of become notorious. It's raised more than $2 billion in venture capital over the last couple of years, and yet has produced, uh, in 2016, $0 in revenue. In 2017, <laughs> $0 in revenue. And, and this year, uh, uh, up to now, has been about 16 uh, and change million million dollars in revenue, and it's decided to go public. It's filed an F one uh, with the SEC, and so we're sort of seeing this unique case of, of a company. They they launched their first product, um, the the ES eight electric SUV, um, in December of last year, uh, and they've only sold uh, a couple of hundred of these units. And so um, suddenly, investors uh, you know here in New York and around the world are looking at this and going, "What is going on? How do you invest?" You know, two billion dollars into a company, try to go public, and you've raised sixteen million in revenue in just a couple of months. Uh, it, it's a pretty incredible story. It's almost shocking. I want to say, I can't believe this is going public. But we've been saying people should go public. I just don't think we meant exactly a company with an operational history of two quarters. Yeah, um, I mean, can I, you imagine if it was a U.S. Uh, uh, a car company that had only sold four hundred cars and went public? <laughs> can you imagine? No. I mean, even when Tesla went public, I think it had a much longer operational history than Neo. 
which is spelled N-I-O, by the way, if you Google it, not N-E-O. Well, let me play devil's advocate for a second, because I think the appeal of Neo, okay, is that you're basically entering into a protected car market, right? I mean, it's backed, essentially backed by the Chinese government, right? I mean, there's very little competition. I mean, granted, there there are a couple of other Chinese competitors, but you pretty much have this protected market in China. And they've put tariffs on imported goods. So that's hitting Tesla hard. And Tesla, 15% of uh, the cars Tesla is selling is actually in China. China is the largest EV uh, market in the world right now, right? Um, and so the way I think of it is, okay, look, if if I want to invest in EVs in China, right, because it is a completely closed, non-competitive market, right, it's completely protected, then why wouldn't I invest in NEO? Well, I mean, they could be terrible at operating and could take all your money and set it on fire. I mean, aside from that, I mean, it, I, see, I see your point about it being an option to put money into the space, into the Chinese area, but I, I mean... The numbers are terrifying. The company had uh, in Q2, to, uh, sorry, in H1 of this year, uh, just under $7 million in total rev before they sold the rest of the cars in July, and they had a net loss of $503 million. Like, I mean, you have to be taking a pretty big leap of faith to put your personal capital into a company that's that unprofitable with essentially no sales history, especially given all of the um, struggles that Elon has had with Tesla in ramping production and also hitting anything like cash flow break even. I mean, maybe they won't have the same access to capital uh, over the long term. Yeah, I guess I just don't get why are they uh, listing on the New York Stock Exchange as compared to in Hong Kong? I mean, there must be tons of cash in China. I mean, why do they have to come here? I read somewhere that they have five, 600 employees already in San Jose, which I think is very interesting. I mean... Those don't come cheap. No, they don't, Right. So I don't know what their end game is here. I mean, I guess raise a bunch of money and try to make this work. I mean, if Elon's correct, Tesla's about to go cash flow break even and also, you know, gap profitable. So I think maybe if Tesla does that, it'll cast a pretty good halo effect on the EV market, uh, at least in the public markets, which could help Neo raise as much capital as it needs. If it has a market cap to sell stock, I mean, why not? But I mean, when you're this young, you're probably pretty fragile as a company. A couple of bad quarters, you can't just shrug them off. You could get pretty messed up by a declining share price um, if you don't have a lot of you know faith behind you. It's, it's concerning to me. But, oh, Danny, go for it. You know, if you compare it into the biotech world, um, you know, it's not uncommon for companies that, you know, have, have submitted things to phase one FDA clinical trials to start to go public. And usually at much smaller numbers, granted, you know, it might only be a $50 million fundraise and then you sort of finance multiple times, um, you sell additional equity. Uh, but it does give, it, it's unique in the tech world in that it does give sort of retail investors access to what could be a venture growth company. Um, you know, we just don't see very often these days in the tech world, um, you know, retail investors having access to say Uber or Lyft or any of the companies we talk about that are unicorns in the Valley today. Yeah, that's, that's totally fair. And I love that idea. I'm just curious if this is the company to do it. And it just worries me. Um, but then again, I'm apparently on the show today. I'm Dr. No Fun. Um, so actually that's not really much of a change. I think about it. Um, but cool. So if you want to put a bunch of money into Neo, uh, now's your chance. Um, but before we go today, we're going to kind of break with our old protocol and talk a little bit about, about crypto, which has been on everyone's second monitor for at least the last week and a half. And if you haven't been paying attention, the, the short version is that there's been a huge sell-off over the last week that's been recovered a little bit in the last 24 or 48 hours. But a lot of major cryptos not only saw their values decline, but some majors actually fell under their year-ago price point, 
one argument um, about Bitcoin that's been very popular since the 2017 highs has been, yes, they're down over the last six months, but if you look back a year, they're actually up. Now, Ethereum, um, very popular uh, crypto blockchain, if you will, um, actually fell beneath its year-ago price. So kind of a turning point, if you will, for the uh, the crypto market, of which the market cap is now down to just about $200 billion, and Bitcoin is back over 50% of that. So kind of a Kind of a weird change in the guards in reversal, and I'm uh, I'm kind of curious, Danny, if you're seeing any change in kind of the the temperature in uh, New York about how people view the crypto market as a whole, <clears throat> as a whole. Yeah, I, certainly. If you go back to November, December last year, um, you know that was at the height of the craze. Bitcoin was approaching twenty thousand. Um, you know, it's a huge loss from then. Uh, today, we're looking at around sixty four hundred dollars for. Uh, the price of Bitcoin, but I think I think people moved on, right? You know, in January, February this year, there was a real uh, shift here. I think uh, among investors um, towards saying, "Look, this has to be a long-term bet. It has to be about infrastructure, scalability, technology, and the crypto prices are going to do what they're going to do." So, at least among the professionals uh, in the community around here, I think more and more people are actually just ignoring the prices in general. Um, the challenge is that many of those investors have, have priced their assets for their funds in cryptocurrency. And so as these numbers go down, um, essentially the AUM, you know, the assets under management for these funds is, is actually declined uh, commensurately. That's not surprising to me. But I mean, we're seeing this trickle down actually into the public markets because the Bitmain IPO may be coming. And everyone's talking a lot about how in Q1, uh, Bitmain had an amazing financial result. Um, huge amounts of revenue and profit, but we haven't seen the Q2 numbers, and people are concerned that uh, declines in certain cryptos like Bitcoin Cash have really decimated its uh, its its value, its AUM essentially um, as a private corporation. So this is not just among speculators and uh, and the VC community. But I'm curious, Manal, do you um, do you want to invest in cryptos themselves? Do you invest in crypto companies? What's your level of exposure and interest in this kind of segment of the VC world? Yeah, I've done a little bit of both. Um, I seed invested in Circle and BitPay and a few others way back in the day. Um, I I don't so much invest in actual cryptocurrency platforms, um, you know, where you can't really take equity. Sure. Um, I tend not to do that as much. Um, but I mean, I I generally agree that I think what's happening here is there's a bit of panic selling going on where um, there are folks who got caught up in the hype in November and December and participated in ICOs. And now... Uh you know, and now I think they're just panic selling. And, um, and that's basically what's happening. So it'll probably correct itself. But yeah, I mean, those of us who are investing in crypto, I, I agree. Our view is, look, a lot of the fundamental technology is not in place yet, all the low stack kind of stuff. And um, so, I mean, for me personally, I'm not even looking at investing in apps yet. I'm looking at wow. let's, let's get the basic technology working, because it's actually uh uh, it's a tough area to technologically get to the place where it needs to be. I mean, if you think of it as an example here, right? Uber is transacting about twelve. It's about twelve rides per twelve transactions of rides per second. Okay, um, but f banks, right? In terms of financial transactions going on, we're talking hundreds of thousands. And right now, um, the cryptocurrency platforms we have. There's no chance they can process anything like that. So when people talk about financial products associated with cryptocurrency platforms, I mean, it just it's so far from reality. It's so far fetched. There's just a lot more technological work that has to be done before that becomes a reality. So 
on that point, do you think that the, the technical work that has to be done is going to look like the Lightning Network that's built on top of Bitcoin? Or do you think it's going to be different blockchains themselves that kind of supplant what we currently have out there? Because I've heard kind of people argue that both ways. Oh, so both? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I think it'll have to be both. And we don't know what's going to pan out yet. I mean, there are hundreds of new platforms being coming out every year. Um, and we just don't know which ones are going to succeed, which ones are going to fail. So we're going to see a lot of trial and error. It's still the wild, wild west. I mean, we still don't even have a lot of other ancillary services put in place like custodial services and things that are very important just to even get the security in place uh, so that people would feel comfortable transacting. So um, it's going to be it's going to be a huge movement that's going to require multiple technologists, multiple VCs and other big financial institutions, everybody working together to actually uh, move it forward technologically and from a from a business model standpoint in terms mm -hmm. of the types of things that can be done before we start to see um, anything outside of what currently looks more like an options market. It's just highly speculative, right? Yeah. So is there going to be something akin to an iPhone moment in the, in the crypto space at one point when one of these applications that's built on top of this future um, plumbing, if you will, takes everyone by storm? Because some people argue that Bitcoin has always been that defining uh, product built on top of its own blockchain, I guess. Um, but I'm curious if we need something else to kind of catalyze mass consumer interest or this will become more of a, uh, a back-end tech that people use but consumers don't know they're actually touching uh, as it goes along. Yeah, I mean, I think eventually... I think is your question is there is there going to be some kind of killer app eventually? I guess yeah, right. That's quite a simple way of putting it. Yeah. So for me, I think it's going to be the killer app will be around blockchain identity. Right now, if you think about it, you're giving away your identity for free wherever you go. If you go to a bar, you're giving your ID, right? I mean, we're we're giving our social security number. We're giving our identity away for free everywhere. And so I think eventually the killer app will be around how to protect your identity, uh, and and that is what I think will you know, generate a mass amount of interest globally. Danny, do you know of any blockchain companies that are currently working on that? Because I think Coinbase just bought a startup this week that is working on digital identity on the blockchain. So I think that may No, definitely. I've actually read about a couple. Um, I think the identity space um, absolutely is one of the more interesting ones. I mean, one, one of the challenges with having a, a killer app uh, in this world is, you know, take CryptoKitties, which at peak had 14,000 simultaneous users, one four thousand. And um, Ethereum just couldn't keep up, right? So you, you don't even have the infrastructure in place to be able to handle a killer app, even if you were to find one. So I think the identity stuff is actually quite interesting. Um, and particularly some of the startups are actually working on um, emerging world, uh, emerging market kind of application. So uh, Jan LeCun, a very famous um, artificial intelligence researcher based here in New York, uh, co-founded a company called Element. Um, and and they, that's what they're doing is trying to allow you to use your phone with a blockchain basis to actually be able to identify yourself with sort of nothing else. Um, you could walk into a bank and that bank would be able to understand who you are without you know a card or fingerprints or anything else. So I, I think it's a really fundamental technology and could be very impactful, but particularly outside the developed world. Yeah, um, I agree. I think the biggest application for for all of this is in the developing world as well. Um, I I kind of think of this whole identity is killer app concept as if you think of it this way, when we're able to take back our privacy and take back our identity from the Facebooks and Googles of the world, it's going to be worth something. So then we can use our identity as an asset, as a currency to trade for something that might ultimately be the basis for universal income. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you know, so um, but but uh, also on the point of emerging markets, uh, I mean, there are over a billion people in the world right now who don't have access to any kind of bank, but they have access to iPhones. So there's a huge opportunity to connect them using blockchain into um, and cryptocurrency into the financial services, personal financial services. So I definitely but again, the fundamental technology isn't there. The the kind of transactions that would have to be done on a second by second basis, you know, the the technology doesn't support that yet. But I do think that that is again yet one of the big killer apps potentially. But if we need this this uh, digital system of identity, is it is it critical to make it on the blockchain? Because decentralized blockchains are slower than centralized databases, and all the stuff we're talking about that can handle high amounts of of transactions are centralized. I guess for the sake of speed, at a minimum. So I wonder if we're talking about the right problem, but we're a little bit overenthusiastic about blockchain as a potential solution for it. Um, because, you know, what, Bitcoin's, what, 10 years old now? And we still can't handle even CryptoKitties on Ethereum. So to me, this is a long time coming at a minimum. I guess, but just think of how much money has been put into cryptocurrency so far. Lots. Uh, not compared to other software and internet areas. It's practically nothing. So how can we expect that level of technological development to be there when all of the VCs out here, I mean, how many funds are even investing in this space aggressively and in large amounts of money? Very few, right? Um, Hedge funds, big financial institutions, nobody's really, there's no institutional backing for this area yet from an investment standpoint. So I don't really think we can expect to see that level of technological advancement until the money is there, right? Okay, well, on that note, we will know in uh, a couple of years who's right, and it's probably not going to be me. But thank you all for coming around, and we'll talk to you next week. All right, everybody, thank you for listening, and a big thank you to Matthew Lindley, Connie Loizos, our producer Christopher Gates, our executive producer Henry Pickovet, and we will see you all right here next week.